Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. And in this podcast, I interview leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. This week, I'm talking to Ron Carucci, a management consultant at Navalent. Ron explains that sometimes uncertainty is thrust upon us, and sometimes we create our own uncertainty by the choices we make. I think that's an interesting take, because we often think uncertainty is completely out of our control. Yet Ron argues, and for what it's worth, I agree with him, he argues that we create uncertainty by instigating change. In today's interview, Ron shares his own story of moving from the east to west coast of the US, the challenges of taking on more than one role, moving his family, and the importance of reflection as part of our development as leaders. Hi, Ron. Thanks for joining me today. Jude, so great to be with you. So for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Ron Carucci, and I spend my days with my uh, firm called Navalent. Uh, we are a small consulting firm that spends our days traipsing in the world, working with leaders of all kinds who are facing turbulent change, who are facing all kinds of uncertainty uh, in their own futures, either certainty, uncertainty they created or uncertainty that was imposed upon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they spend their days trying to guide their organizations through that turbulence, and we spend our time accompanying them. Great. So you have you must have lots of stories to tell about uncertainty. It's a uh, it's sort of how I spend my life. Um, you know, change and transition uh, through the you know the um, the tumultuous times of change, which is I think these days is what day isn't that right? Mm. Um, every day, you know, you have somebody. But both in both in both of our countries, we seem to have leaders who just seem to say and do things that people can can understand. Um, and so, you know, regardless of whether it's socioeconomic or competitive or political, um, we seem to have people who just can't get out of their own way and leaders who struggle. Mm. Um, and then they find themselves in an unforeseen ditch um, and have to get out. Mm. Yeah. And you said you said something interesting right at the beginning. Is you, you said that sometimes the, the uncertainty is uh, created by the people who are in the uncertainty and sometimes it's imposed upon them. Can you say a bit more about that? Well, you know, I think that sometimes leaders, I mean, so if you're going to embark on any kind of courageous journey of risk or you've decided to pursue a new strategy or you've decided to launch a new product or you've decided to acquire another company or you've decided to change your own behavior, mm-hmm. you, you created uncertainty. You may, you may be in denial about that uncertainty and you may presume that it's all going to go exactly as you envisioned it in your head, which is delusion, right? But, but you've, cr- you've created that uncertainty, I- I- even if it's change you want, mm-hmm. um, even if it's not just a defensive response to um, something imposed outside, it's still change you chose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but by contrast, I think that sometimes we are, um, change is imposed upon us. A competitor makes a move, somebody changes pricing, a new regulation or a legal reality happens or somebody does something dumb in our company and we're suddenly recalling a product you know there are all kinds of human error or or just political forces or social forces or health forces Mm. in the environment around us that necessitate that we change Mm. anytime you've introduced uh you know anything that's precedent setting right we're going to do something for the first time 
that's uncertainty. Mm. Um, no matter how much certainty we try, and I think that's one of the, the greatest the challenges of leaders is that when they face uncertainty, their first impulse is to impose certainty upon it, mm. which of course is deadly because that's why it's uncertainty. It's because mm. you can impose certainty on it. Uh, you wouldn't be uncertain if you could. Mm. But, but our need for control, our need for um, sure footing, our need to want to be at a, we're predictability seeking machines as mm. humans. And our need for that causes us to try to contend with the uncertainty our own discomfort with it by imposing absoluteness on it mm. uh, in ways that you, you shouldn't. Mm. Yeah. Cause I mean, uncertainty is uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, you know, people avoid it at all cost and a number of leaders that I work with that say, you know, we like to be in control. And yet when there's uncertainty, there's a feeling of being completely out of control. Well, that's the, that's the whole point of, of change is you've mm. surrendered what you know for the sake of what you don't yet know. Mm. Um, and I think those leaders who are afraid of learning, who are afraid of their own process of discovery, who mm. are afraid of their own vulnerabilities and weaknesses, which that's most human beings, right? Mm-hmm. But I think when you're not um, willing to acknowledge those things, you then deny them. And yeah. so then the way you overcome the discomfort of uncertainty is to pr- either pretend it's not uncertain or to pretend that it is certain. Mm. Um, and of course, if you're in a leadership role, you then have to bring everybody into that delusion with you. Um, and then we have collusion because we're all talking about how difficult things really are, but we're not talking out loud about it. Mm. And that shroud of secrecy, that shroud of silence on top of uncertainty just creates a very toxic environment. Mm. So have you got um, an example of somebody who's done it, you know, who's, who's embraced uncertainty really well? <laughs> um, I, you know, there's a, um, I have one client. It, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> I have experiences of, of doing it very poorly, but I have a client and I, you know, I, and it's going to immediately sound like this must be some attributional, you know, some magical genetic code that makes him this way. But I think you'd find most people who do embrace uncertainty well are optimistic. They're courageous. Um, they recognize life has, both wanted and unwanted surprises, and they're able to sort of ride the wave of mm. the uncertainty. He's an amazingly positive man. He's principled. He's confident, but he's, but he's also humble. Mm-hmm. Um, but he recognizes that the world is volatile. Um, if you're leading something and you're competing, you know, you have to be prepared for the unknown. Mm. Um, and I've watched him through several different, very large assignments and very big jobs, including a CEO role. I've watched him um, face the turbulence of either having to impose uncertainty on things that were stuck um, by dislodging them or have impo- uncertainty imposed on him by being handed assignments or opportunities that were dreadfully misguided and mm-hmm. having to sort of make proverbial lemons, lemonade out of lemons. Um, and in both cases, he, he's, he, you know, he has his own struggles with his own lack of resilience sometimes, or he gets discouraged, or he gets frustrated. He's very impatient. His impatience, I think, is a gift, but I think it's his own self-deprecating weapon. Because if you're living through uncertainty, you, your, your journey to the other side is probably not going to be quick, or it's certainly not, not going to be nearly as quick as you might want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so his impatience, I think, sometimes gets the best of him. Or his expectation that it should go differently 
when in fact it shouldn't because it's turbulence for a reason. And so I think those two become his Achilles heel. But for the most part, his ability to stay focused and optimistic and committed is really impressive, mm-hmm. um, even in spite of how difficult things around him are or how, um, how much the people around him do or don't share his vision for where he wants to go. Mm. That's, so that's interesting. So that even, even when people don't share his vision, he can still stand strongly in the uncertainty and, and courageously move forward. And I, well, so to, he, to, to, I would define your term stand strongly as sometimes he wobbles, <laughs> but he recognizes that. So, you know, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land, right? And sometimes what people are not, rec- in one particular assignment I've seen where he's, you know, actually two major assignments I've seen in him, um, Rome was burning. I mean, but, but people were very comfortable. It was the frog in the boiling water, classic syndrome, right? But people did not feel the boiling water. And so he, he needed to make them feel it. And he's very data-driven. He's very analytical. He brings in information that helps. And then he compels he, mm-hmm. he, because he's very, he's very genuine. So he's very compelling. And in a situation, the first one I saw, he did very, very well. In the current situation, there was so much comfort and so much avoidance of change and 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 dec before he got there decades of constructing a story that said we're good we're all good when the world around them is changing dramatically and they just don't see it but they're mm-hmm. so competitively financially socially very comfortable in this very large enterprise mm-hmm. uh, and so he, trying to raise the compulsion in them trying to raise the sense of this water is about to hit a boiling point um, and about to could mean several years, right? But in the scheme of the whole story, yeah. they're just not getting it. And he's turned people over. He's brought new leaders in. And some are starting to get it, but it's very slow. And he's extremely impatient. So his frustration sometimes gets the best of him. And it, his expectations, I think that's the hardest part about uncertainty is what you do with your own expectations. Mm. Because if you, if you can't temper them and you can't align them with what's possible, and you only align them with what you want, you're going you're gonna to frustrate everybody else because mm-hmm. they're going to feel inadequate. They're going to feel on top of their own uncertainty. They're going to feel, they're going to flinch you because they're going to think no matter what I do, it won't be good enough. And I think, so, you know, I think it's interesting that the, the idea of having expectations in uncertainty, because if we don't have any expectation at all, then we're going to just flounder in chaos forever. And yep. yet, and yet, by its very nature, uncertainty is unknown and uncertain, and therefore our expectations may or may not be met. Right. Well, I think for, I mean, it's, it's what is that fine line between having an expectation to at least have some kind of a plumb line to guide you, but not to make that expectation so rigid mm. and so definitive as to not be able to adapt or not be able to, I mean, when expectations blind you, to what, what's right in front of you, mm. to the reality of, you know, I'm not sure. So in our country, when they're doing construction on a road, there's a barricade at the end of the, where the construction starts. It's a little orange and red lines mm-hmm. that says this is where the road stops. You know, we're doing uncertainty. We're constantly moving that barricade as yeah. the road breaks itself. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you, when you move it the next time to see what's there to pave, you have no idea what's going to be there. You may like to believe all going to be smooth, flat dirt, but it could be a cliff. 
Um, and so you have to recognize that what I know is I'm going to have to move the barricade. I can expect to do that. I can expect to have to move the road then. And I really don't know how that's going to go. Mm. But what you have to be able to expect is people to adapt, to learn, to be, and I think the real critical one is to be honest yeah. about what you're seeing and what you're not seeing and who you have and who you don't have. And I think sometimes expectations uh, that are unrealistic lead to dishonesty. And eventually people fear your expectations to the point where they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm. Um, even though they and know that's it's not really, true. Yeah. And that's, that's when it gets really dangerous, isn't it? Because yes. that's, that's when, you know, if people are only telling you what you want to hear, then you really yeah. are. To You're screwed. You're really screwed. Because that's, that is, it's dangerous is a great word, Jude. It's now you have no radar and you have nothing reliable mm. and you're moving the barricade. Mm. And so it's, it's, the, it's the Titanic and you just yeah. don't even know it. Yeah. And so if, if you're not getting truthful information from people during uncertainty of people, now the, the people may be very truthful about it. You know, they could be telling you this is a doomed disaster of a thing because they're of their own fears. Mm-hmm. And it may be the very journey you have to take. So how as a leader do you compel people? You know, you're not a sociopath. You really are committed to a journey you have to take. But people's own fears and own discomfort are causing them all to scream. You know, don't go over this cliff when in fact you have no choice. Mm. That's a very difficult situation. And I think for me, that's always a symptom of you waited too long, right? Yeah. You, the, the journey should have begun months, years ago um, before you had, so. It, but, but the longer you wait to impose that uncertainty, the fewer the options you have, the more narrow your choices are. Mm-hmm. And then you really, then the choices all feel, whether they are or not, they certainly feel radical. And do you think that there's a um, there's a difference between um, small and medium businesses and and maybe large traditional organisations that have have got more people in them to to leverage and to to win over? I don't. I, I think that it's not less difficult than any one or the other. I think it's just different difficult. So in startups where people pride themselves on being more agile and there's fewer people. And so they're, they expect to have to go through change. It's no different when you have to layer people over people and bring in new leaders because you didn't develop the ones you had. Right. In both cases that what's common, I think between them, Jude is you miss signals, mm-hmm. right? The, the, you know, now the journey may feel faster in the earlier years of maturity or in the mid-sized years of maturity, but the mid, the mid-sized companies, as an example, the classic uncertainty there is you're a classic 20 million pound company trapped in the body of a 5 million pound organization, (laughs) right? Well, that started to happen a while ago, but you just didn't look at it, right? And so you thought it was all working. You can hear the seams ripping in the company, but the reality is you're, you know, you outgrew yourself Mm. without scaling well, and now you're behind. It's like the teenage boy wearing his dad's suit. Um, you have to grow into it. And so that's a different kind of uncertainty now than a startup or a, a large bureaucratic company. But the reality is you have to, something has to get broken, whether you have to break it or it's broken and you just have to acknowledge it's broken in order to be re- rebuilt and rediscovered and recreated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes courage. It takes tolerance of risk. It takes self-honesty. It takes creativity. It takes thoughtfulness. And it takes levels of patience most of us don't naturally start with. Mm. So, what would your what would your advice be to um, 
to a CEO who's experiencing enormous uncertainty? Um, you know, um, don't grasp at straws. So many of them try and grasp at their favorite lever, right? So they grasp at the culture lever or the, the, the org chart structural lever or the technology lever or the, the data lever. They go out and have strategy companies go out and collect all kinds of data. And they don't step back and look at the picture holistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say step back and get yourself, you know, you wouldn't walk into a, a heart surgeon and, and say to them, I, got, I have a pain right here in my chest that really, really hurts. And if the heart surgeon said to you, oh, I've seen this a million times, you need a stint. Let's go put it in, I'll go in, let's go in the arm and put it in. Well, don't you want an MRI? Don't you want to, mm-hmm. no, 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 I know, that's fine. Yeah, I, I know where it is. You, you should run, right? Mm-hmm. So no CEO should enter the radical stage of doing anything surgical on his or her, or her organization without an MRI. Mm-hmm. Get a decent diet and don't hire someone whose diagnostic lens is one thing, right? So, you know, the classic, if I have a hammer, everything I see is a nail. And yeah. so if you're a strategy consultant, of course, everything's going to be market data. If you're a culture consultant, everything's going to be, it's going to be bad. Get a true look at the enterprise you're leading and its competitive context and look for systemic solutions. Because if you got yourself into a ditch, chances are it started happening a long time ago mm-hmm. um, and you missed some signals. Mm-hmm. So try and figure out how far back that might have been so that you don't repeat bad choices. Yeah. The second thing is get, get, be real honest about who can and can't come on the journey with you. Don't just have the people you like or the people you, you know, really assess people for how adaptable they are, how committed they are, how open-minded they are, mm-hmm. how much they're willing to tell you hard news. Um, and and pr- just assume that there'll be some portion of people who just can't come on the journey with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to make some very hard decisions and don't wait till they're even harder to make yeah. them. Yeah. And then construct a plan. Construct a plan and recognize that it's probably a multi-year plan to have to navigate that. If you really want to, you know, whatever the enterprises you're leading to outlive you, and you should, then recognize that the journey may outlive you as well. And so mm-hmm. don't, don't try and fix this in six months or three months. If it really is something that's been chronically troubling the organization for a long time, recognize that so will the remedy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, tell me your story, Ron. Give me, give me an example of when you've um, experienced uncertainty and, oh and come out uh, the other no. side. Uh, well, we might still be coming out the other side. We're still not sure. 14 <laughs> Um, I, when we started Navalent, um, I moved to Seattle to do it. So I'm where I was in New York. I'm a native East coaster. Now, for those of you on your side of the pond, understand that you you already know this United States is not all one thing. Mm -hmm. So London and Wales are not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So think, think that dramatically when you go from New York to Seattle, it's like you should acquire a passport. Well, it's multiple time zones too. I mean, that, that in itself is... Yeah. It's a huge change. Um, I was on the border of a graduate school and the board asked me to step off the board to come and help. It was a startup graduate school. I don't think I appreciated just how startup it was. And I came off the board to run it. And so I thought, well, I'll just do two jobs. I'll run the graduate school while I'm starting my firm with my, my colleagues, sorry, Navalent. So that was delusion number one that you could do, you know, there'd be like two part-time jobs, starting <laughs> a company and running an academic institution. The second delusion was that because I, I thought, well, I know I didn't, I had said no to the job nine times. Like I did not want this job. I didn't think I was qualified, but they were quite persistent and I eventually just gave in. Um, but um, 
knowing a lot about organizations doesn't make you qualified to run one. Um, and so, and I was not a PhD. I wasn't a theologian. I wasn't an academician. I wasn't a clinician. I wasn't anything this school did other than a person who understood how to grow up an organization that was being very immature. So I was an outsider in every way. Plus I was from New York. Mm -hmm. So so the, for the for five years, I lived in that reality, doing some of the most formative years of my kids' lives. You know, they were entering their teenage years. Um, and it was hell. It was absolute hell. All of my dearest friends were back on the East Coast. I We were new here. Seattle is known for being not the most friendly city to try and assimilate to. Um, so we bought this fixer-upper of a house that needed a lot of work. <laughs> Um, as if two jobs wasn't enough <laughs> uh, as it, yeah plus trying to raise kids plus trying to help my family assimilate trying to create community yeah. uh it was five years of a nightmare wow. um, so and i did all all the things i would have advised everybody not to do i hunkered <laughs> down i isolated i got really depressed i got cranky <coughs> i wasn't doing either of my jobs well um while trying to do, you know, 80, 80 or so hours a week of work. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, there was no moments of joy, even though there were moments of accomplishment, moments to, to be celebrated. I didn't have any emotional resilience to enjoy them. Um, it was just nothing but a living hell. And I made people know that. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, but, but it, it wasn't so much the tumultuous of the journey that, created the problem it was the choice to do it in the first place mm. right i mean and so now once you've made one set of bad choices that it's like compounding interest it just keeps compounding and all of, over those five years it compounded terribly mm -hmm. and once i finished my time at the grad school and put it into the hands of a different leader and said goodbye um and came back to just one job that i actually know how to do um it was very different um now i had a lot of recovery to do from those five years <laughs> But um, it, it was, you know, just way too much uh, presumption about what I could, could or couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So was that, was that the turning point then for you? Was that the moment that you let your old job go? Well, I would say the turning point was recognizing that I needed a turning point at that moment, right? Mm -hmm. So I knew that just exiting one job, and I had committed to do it for five years, so my time was finished. Um, although it came to a very bumpy ending, it still was done. Um, but I was, I was tired and I was sort of gasping across the finish line. But I also recognized that I had, be, I had become a very different human being in those five years, right? For better or worse, I had, be, I had it, there was intense levels of my own formation that had happened. Mm -hmm. Good at that. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I didn't take the time to, to intentionally reflect on who did I become in these five years, do I even like who I became? Mm -hmm. And is there anything I need to leave behind? And what do I want to take with me? If I hadn't done some intentional work in a, among a community of friends and colleagues to really be honest, to narrate the story of who I had become in those five years, I could have taken a lot of crap with me mm -hmm. into, into the next season of my life, and it could have just been equally as toxified. So I spent about six months doing some very reflective work uh, on what, what did those five years mean? Who did I become in those five years? What parts did I not like who I became? What parts did I, was I willing to be surprised by who I might have become that I liked? Mm -hmm. And that I could see that what I learned and what I gained and what I acquired could have happened no other way but through those five years. Mm -hmm. So I could at least appreciate some good they did in my life. Yeah.
before I moved on. It wasn't just about perseverance and suffering. Yeah. Um, and I, I think too many leaders come out the other side of journeys and think it's over because the, the pain is over. Um, and sometimes that's when the most important work has to start. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you say that because what you know what I heard you say was that you spent about six months reflecting on who who you had become as a leader and who you were being, and I think it's so easy to reflect on you know we've gone through a change management project. Let's look at what did we do well, but we forget to look at who were we being in the process, and that's right. often and who do we be? most crucial piece. Well, and there's no change journey if, if it's done well. There's no change journey for which a set of leaders is not going to should return to the organization a better version of it. Mm. But it's going to return. It should be returning a better version of them mm. when it's over. And you have to construct the journey to do that. If you construct the journey to keep yourself out of it, as though you don't want to get any of that change on you, mm-hmm. um, and you think you're just there to impose change without changing yourself, that is the kiss of death. Mm. That is. If you, leaders can't change organizations if they can't change with them. Yeah, yeah. And, and it can't be by accident. It has mm-hmm. to be intentional. And mm-hmm. then you have to be able to name. You know, we all think that human beings learn from experience, but we don't. That's why we repeat, repeat so many dumb things. Yeah. We, only learn, we only learn from the analysis of the experience. We mm-hmm. learn from the reflection on the experience. That's mm-hmm. where we acquire the insight and the learning. And yeah. if you don't do that or take the time to do that, you're going to keep repeating dumb things. Mm-hmm. So what was, the, what was the key learning for you as a leader? Don't take on two jobs, one of which you're not qualified for. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that um, crucibles produce levels of strength and resilience. You may not even be aware you, you acquired, but they produce levels of creativity and innovation, right? So when I look back over those five years, mm. um, that, that orange and white barricade that I kept having to move in both of my worlds, creating a required me to reach for resourcefulness, to be creative, to, tr- to try new things, to try things I would have never thought to do in my old comfortable world in New York, where I was on a career path and a predictability uh, of great certainty for c- classic consulting partnership. Um, I had to reach for tools and resources and ideas that would have no more occurred to me than the men in the moon. Mm-hmm. And so when I look back on those five years and realized, well, I am so much more, uh, I-, I mean, I had I had become crusty and hard and cranky that I needed to let go of a lot of that stuff. But I also had become creative and resourceful and mindful of how, how to create change mm-hmm. uh, in ways I would have never had to consider before. Mm-hmm. And I got to bring all that with me into my work. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because what I'm hearing again is that uncertainty requires us to be creative and innovative. And in, and in doing that, we create uncertainty. And so the cycle continues. And it's yet, very much a loop. You have to be able to, every time you move that barricade to do something new, you know, it's, it's always very tempting to reach back for what you know, to reach back for that. Well, that, I tried that tool before. Or, you know, two months ago, I moved the barricade. I did this, this looks the same, so I'll just do the same thing. Mm. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes you know, reaching back for wisdom and experience. But sometimes if, you, if it's a formula and I'm just going to mindlessly slap the same thing on the same thing, that means I'm not reading the context. I'm not really looking at the ground and looking at what I've moved to see, is it really the same? Or I just am seeing it the same because that's comfortable for me. Yeah. And learning to read context and learning to understand what of my experience base, what of my wisdom does apply to this and what doesn't. Mm. Okay. Brilliant. Thanks, Ron. Um, 
couple of questions for you then before we uh, before we close. What keeps you awake at night? My children. Um, they're. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and I think that's <clears throat> most parents, right? It doesn't matter how old they are. They're they're both in the earliest parts of their own adulthood now, and so you know these are these are the times where your parenting is just finishing, right? Where you're launching them off into their own lives and worlds. Um, and huge you just amounts want to, of uncertainty. Huge levels of uncertainty. <laughs> um, and there's the you know there's that dual fear in every parent. Uh, what, am I going to be done? Oh my God, when am I going to be done? You know? <laughs> um, and you want there's the letting go of the their need for you and recognizing that you want them to let go and not need you anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you know they still need you in some form, mm. um, whether it's you know emotionally or financially. Um, how what, how will you help craft that place where they can be self-sustaining, self-sufficient adults and happy? Mm. Um, and I think you know we're in a world today where the uncertainty for them is very different than it was for us at their age, and so um, there's always a, a lot of a lot of stress there. Yeah. Um, the other one that keeps me up at night is my in my own work in my own field. You, you know the uncertainty of when I started this career um, several decades ago. Um, you know, people weren't doing leadership and organizational work the same way to the degree they are today. Now there's thousands, there's tens of thousands of people doing this work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, by the droves they're pouring out into the field. They have no experience, they have no training, they they're retired from something, and someone said you should be a coach or you should be a consultant. They self-publish their own book, and now everybody out there, and they use the same language and the same models and frameworks and the same regurgitated nonsense. But that's who I'm being compared to, mm -hmm. right? So when people want to think about getting help for their, their strategy or their organization or their leadership, what we do and what we train decades to do, I'm being compared to a hack. Mm -hmm. We're probably 30 years younger than me and looks, looks prettier. Um, and I've never had to do that before. I've never had, I mean, we have to sell. We're, we're, we're all professional services firms. You have to sell, sell what you do and make it available. But my gosh, trying to stand apart from all that noise, mm. um, it's it is more maddening than anything I've ever experienced in my professional career, because I'm having to learn to do it while I'm doing it. Yeah. I, so I hired a coach for me three years ago. I hired my own coach mm -hmm. to help me figure this out because everything I thought to do wasn't working, and turns out I didn't know what to do. Mm. Um, and so that, it's very frustrating. At a place in my career, I've you know you have that. Part, Anytime you have uncertainty, you have to deal with the, the dead narratives, the narratives in your head that are mis-narrating the story. So the narrative in my head that says, I shouldn't have to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting, but you do. Yeah. So <laughs> keep thinking that is not going to help. And so mm -hmm. how, do I, how do I make peace with the fact that the world changed around me and it's uncertain now? Mm -hmm. And it's a level of uncertainty of skill that I've never had to acquire before. Mm -hmm. At the time, I've reached the pinnacle of my career when I'm the best at what I do. Now I have this whole other set of muscles I, I'm nationed at. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the reality. So I don't have to like it, but if I keep resisting it, I, keep, I won't keep get, getting better at it. And so those two things, between my kids and that, I, I could retire tomorrow. Yeah. And it's interesting that both, both of those things are, are just rife with uncertainty. They're things that you have almost no control over. Influence, yes. You know, you can look at what can I do to influence things? What can I do differently? How can I make it better? But they're rife with you don't have any control whatsoever. None. <laughs> you know, None. That, that's why uncertainty is so challenging, I think, for people, because it is the, is the thing that 
we can't we can't think our way out of it we can you know we can look at it we can use our intuition we can but the best we can do is have a go look and see did that work and if it did great and if it didn't try something try else. else and and pick yourself up and get going yeah. um and but it's the it's the it's the presumption of control that i should be able to control this narrative that is dangerous right mm. because sh- sure maybe you should but you, you can't so how do you let go um and trust and 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 then there's the woulda, coulda, shouldas, right? So there's always the moment where you realize the journey should have started much longer. That moment where a leader or me recognizes, oh crap, I saw all those signals that I missed, mm-hmm. right? So the, there's a, there always is a point at which every leader realizes, oh, wow, that's what that meant? Yeah. Well, now you have to grieve. You have to grieve all of that opportunity that you missed. You have to grieve all of those signals you didn't see. Mm. Um, you can't go back and re-see them. Um, you can learn from those and try and you know see them again again if they appear again but you suddenly the entire story behind you gets reorganized yeah. with a new lens um, and that's very that in and of itself is disruptive forget about the story ahead you then have to reorganize the story you've been telling yourself behind you for a long time and that's mm-hmm. painful mm-hmm. yeah so final um final tip then your your um your children young adults are going to hate this but um what what's your what would your tip be for them um, if they were ever going to listen to it or take heedance, what would your tip be for them stepping into uncertainty? Uh, nothing. It's a, it's the same tip my mentor. She said to, she's still alive and she's still my mentor. She's been my mentor for thirty years, and she's you know about to turn eighty, and she's as spry as a any thirty year old. And she said to me very early on in my career, nothing in life is irrevocable except death. And and so you get do overs. So so to use your words, do you give it a go? Mm. I mean, you can be paralyzed in fear and stress and uncertainty and uh, all the what ifs. Uh, that's never going to go away, but you can build your resilience to live through those moments if you want to give it a go and take a shot. You know, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. I, I think we've done a terrible job telling younger generations today that, that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think they, and sadly, they, we prepared them to be not resilient for the world by telling them that because you have to endure. Sometimes life has to hurt. Mm. Uh, it's just part of a deal. Mm. And uncertainty is a part of that. Now, I think, ironically, some of our younger generation, because of technology, because of the ever-evolving world they've lived through, that's all they've ever known. Mm. So adaptability is a little bit easier for them. The problem is commitment is not, right? right. So, so the endurance that re- required by a long-term commitment, they've never seen that part. Yeah. I think that's where they're going to struggle. Mm. So it's give it, give it a go, but keep, keep at it. But keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give it a go for 20 minutes and decide how to know what give somebody else a go. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Ron, so much for your time. Judy, a great pleasure to be with you. Um, I look forward to sharing your episode with listeners. And if your listeners want to stay in touch, I'd love to keep talking. Come find me at Ron at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We have a great ebook on leading. Tra- so if you want to know more about uncertainty, we have a free ebook called Leading Transformation. And it's our playbook on the tumultuousness of uncertainty. You can come to Navalent.com slash transformation and find that free ebook there. Download it and enjoy it. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Ron Carucci and I'm on LinkedIn. So I'd love to stay in touch and keep chatting. Brilliant. Well, thanks for that, Ron. And I'll make sure that all of those links are on my website as well. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Tina. Have a good 2019. Yeah, you too. Bye.
I learn something new about uncertainty every time I speak to someone, and Ron was no exception. He actually says the moment we stop learning, we've given up on leading. And I love his tip about giving it a go and keep going. I'm not sure his kids will thank me for that top tip, but I think it's a useful one. There's a tendency to stop and prevaricate in uncertainty, to try and establish control and create a plan, or to run around like a headless chicken in complete chaos. The thing about uncertainty is that we are not in control. Once it's instigated, whether buyers or thrust upon us, we have to lead our way through it the best we can. Ron and his team at Navalent specialise in that, so check them out if you're in the US. Until next time, how are you reflecting on your leadership? Who are you being as a leader? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on leading through uncertainty. Mm-hmm.